Now I'm almost 45 years old. Today my age stopped when the hearts of more than 100 children stopped beating. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the death. And this is my main mission as the leader of my people, great Ukrainians. And as the leader of my nation, I am addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraine. That was Ukrainian President Zelensky delivering a powerful speech to a joint session of Congress Wednesday morning. Zelensky invoked the memories of America's darkest moments. Remember Pearl Harbor, he said. Remember September 11th. Death from the sky visited on Americans, just as death from the sky is now being visited on the Ukrainian people. He showed a gut-wrenching video showing charred bodies, fleeing refugees, and bombs, one after another, destroying Ukrainian cities and killing civilians. He praised President Biden for the help he's provided so far, but then implored him to do more. If not a no-fly zone, then more air defense systems, more planes, more weapons to fight the Russian aggressors. We'll discuss the takeaways from Zelensky's speech. Then we'll hear an excerpt from our talk with the former chief of the Ukrainian Air Force about what the Ukrainians really need. And we'll listen to the comments of a former top CIA official about Vladimir Putin's murderous past and what that can mean for the future of Ukraine on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. That was such a powerful speech by Zelensky, and you know, reports are members of Congress were in tears listening to him and seeing that video. But you know, there's so much to talk about here. But there was a, you know, one point I just wanted to start with. You know, the world first learned, or at least Americans first learned, about the existence of uh, Zelensky back in 2019 when uh, Trump makes that uh, crass phone call request for him to investigate Joe Biden and provide dirt for his political campaign. Here we are, uh, not quite three years later. Trump is gone, off in Mar-a-Lago, surrounded by sycophants, uh, spouting off nonsense. And Zelensky bestrides the world stage, uh, a modern-day Winston Churchill who is um, inspiring people around the world to support his country under uh, Russian aggression. We've all heard and made the Churchill analogies, but there's one that really 
stuck out to me, quoted in Dan Baltz's piece in the Washington Post today. He quotes from Andrew Roberts, a British historian biographer of Churchill, who made this point, comparisons between the two leaders are not overdrawn. Quote, Winston Churchill, although he was bombed every night during the Blitz in the same way that Kiev is now being bombed, didn't have the added dangers of the Germans landing in Britain, Robert said. They weren't 20 kilometers away. In a sense, Zelensky is undergoing more immediate danger even than Winston Churchill did. So comparisons to the two are not over the top. And that's worth remembering. We're all inspired by Zelensky's words, but his courage remaining in Kiev, a city under bombardment, shows a measure of bravery and courage that is inspiring on its own. My recollection is that um, when there was a peaceful Black Lives Matters march in front of the White House a couple of years ago, Donald Trump was not quite channeling Winston Churchill. He was diving into the bunker underneath, <laughs> yeah, the, underneath exactly. the White House. The other thing I'll say about, about Trump, and then I think we should move on and not talk about yes. politics here, transcend that with the tragedy that's happening and the inspiring words of President Zelensky. But I saw Trump, I don't know if it was at Mar-a-Lago where he was. He was on stage somewhere um, you know, with a, a, his adoring MAGA fans there and and I think he was asked about the situation in Ukraine and he went on about the incredibly brave Ukrainian people but he could not bring himself to say anything about Volodymyr Zelensky who I'm guessing he still blames uh, you know for his first impeachment so there you have it but the speech was was masterful it was very moving he showed that video uh, which was just gut wrenching I mean you know children playing started with children playing, being held by their smiling parents, and then turning to black and white. Uh, and you see them crying, being carried away from bombing sites, lifted onto gurneys, a body being thrown into a trench, serving as a makeshift grave. I mean, just terrible. It is also, I have to say, a reminder that, that Zelensky is so effective in, in so many ways, not just uh, the courage uh, that he's exhibiting, the inspirational words that rally his own country and the world, but also he is continuing to run circles around Putin uh, in the information wars. And we saw it once again with that video. Now, there's a lot of things that he is asking for, including a no-fly zone and uh, these uh, these MiG uh, aircraft, which we're going to talk about, and uh, the, gen- the Ukrainian Air Force general will be talking about on this podcast that have not happened yet and, and may never happen. And so the reality is, is that Ukraine is still facing an enormous threat uh, from a huge military uh, in Russia that still has hundreds of thousands of, of soldiers, an enormous amount of equipment that can still be thrown at the Ukrainians. So it is still a dire, dire situation. Absolutely. But those haunting words at the end when he switches to English and says, I see no sense in life if it cannot stop death. Think about that line, because I think it's one we're going to be remembering for a long time. But it has a very specific message, which is, yes, 
we appreciate the Biden administration and all the help you've given, but we need more. We need much more. Close the sky over Ukraine was the tagline on the video after seeing those images of the, you know, the bombs and the and the frightened civilians and the charred bodies. But, you know, that translates into, you know, specific asks. And he modified it a bit. He said, if the no-fly zone cannot happen, then there are specific things you can do, the United States and Western allies, more planes, more air defense systems. He didn't specifically mention the Polish MiGs, but that's clearly what he's talking about. And, you know, it's going to be, I think, the moral pressure on the White House and the Congress to step up to the plate here and respond to Zelensky's plea is going to be really, really powerful in and of itself. And the plea was, particularly when he moved to English uh, after the video, uh, the plea was directed very personally at Joe Biden, uh, where he said that uh, Joe Biden can be the leader of the world, and being the leader of the world means to be uh, the leader of peace. And if you're the president of the United States, you're thinking about that awesome responsibility going forward. So look, there are some, I agree with you 100%, this is going to really ratchet up uh, the pressure, particularly to deliver fighter planes. I mean, you you hear the arguments already being made by a, a, a lot of members of, of Congress you know, asking the question, why would sending uh, fighter planes really be such a big escalation when we're already sending huge numbers of weapons, hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons that are killing Russian soldiers every day? Meanwhile, the Russians have been escalating all along, including, you know, an attack on a military facility where just a few weeks ago, Americans uh, were training Ukrainians and uh, in, in Western Ukraine that killed 35 people. And we've so, had some fresh reporting on that, right, from our colleague Zach Dorfman? Well, the fresh reporting that we have um, actually goes further back and, and involves a secret CIA training program uh, that started after Russia first seized Crimea and the Donbass uh, in eastern Ukraine. This is actually a terrific scoop. A team of uh, CIA paramilitaries uh, were flown to the front lines of the war in eastern Ukraine, where they trained Ukrainian soldiers in being snipers, in using these anti-tank javelin missiles. These are the very weapons that the Ukrainians are now using to fend off the Russians uh, to great success. Four generals, four Russian generals have been killed uh, since this invasion began, and, and at least one of them, maybe more, were killed by sniper fire. So it is possible that some of that CIA training has led to direct, you know, ability to actually take out Russian uh, military leadership in this war. We don't know exactly, but certainly this training has, has has helped a lot. Now, they the CIA paramilitaries pulled out before the invasion began, uh, but that program, I think, which has never been reported before, I think will turn out to have been very important uh, to, the, to the Ukrainians. Uh, one other thing I wanted to say is, so there's the, the pressure being ratcheted up on sending um, fighter jets uh, into Ukraine. That's a complicated, there, there are complicated logistics involved. I mean, the question is, how do you actually get them in? Are they going to be flown in, in which case uh, they could be shot down? Who's going to fly them in? Are they going to be, uh, you know, uh, driven in somehow? So we don't really know how exactly that would would work um, if it does happen. 
But I'm also beginning to hear people talk about, if not a no-fly zone in central or eastern Ukraine or over big cities like Kyiv, the possibility of a no-fly zone um, in western Ukraine, and actually even positioning NATO forces there. Now, this is something that Skullduggery listeners um, will have heard about a couple of podcasts ago when we had Congressman uh, Tom Malinowski uh, on the podcast who suggested that. I just heard Ian Brzezinski, a defense analyst and the brother of Mark Brzezinski, the U.S. ambassador uh, to Poland, who was also a recent uh, Skullduggery guest. Our last Skullduggery Our our last Skullduggery guest. Episode, uh, yeah. uh, Advocating for that, that we should have a no-fly zone in, in western Ukraine, which he called the part of the country that is least contested, and to position NATO forces there. And basically his argument was, you know, that would put the ball in Putin's court. Do they want to escalate? If we're there, the chances of direct conflict with the Russians are very slim because the Russians aren't there. But if the Russians then want to come at us, well, that's a different story. So I don't know that it's going to end up there, but I think that's going to be part of the discussion. And the last thing I'll say about this is this is all coming about a week before a big NATO summit in Brussels that President Biden has now announced he will be going to. All of these things will be on the table uh, in Brussels. And so it may be that by next week, we start hearing more serious talk about some of these options. Right. Now, I think it would be a good time now to listen to some ex- or an excerpt of our talk the other day with General Sergei Drozdov, the former chief of the Ukrainian Air Force, uh, now a member of the Defense Ministry. One of the issues has been whether the Ukrainians are capable of flying these MiG jets, Soviet-era MiG jets in Poland that the Poles offered and the Biden administration vetoed, fearing escalation. But one of the issues was also whether they're able to fly them, whether they're capable of handling them. Uh, General Drozdov is actually a fighter pilot himself. He's flown MiGs, uh, so he knows how to do it. He says there are plenty of Ukrainians, Air Force pilots who are able to do so. But he had some interesting comments himself. His English is not great, but there's one excerpt that's worth listening to. So, um, Mark, why don't you play it? We prepare into war. We prepare many pilots to use in uh, military conflict. In each our aircraft, we prepare in two readiness pilot. And now we have many pilots who have not uh, aircraft and uh, who ready to fly in another aircraft. We have enough pilots, not enough planes. We have enough pilots, not enough planes. Uh, Not exactly as uh, inspirational, perhaps, as Zelensky's speech, but 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 very pointed and direct going to what the Ukrainians need more planes right now. I should point out that another comment that General Drozdov made in our conversation with him was that while the Ukrainians have been successful shooting down some 70 uh, uh, Russian aircrafts and a whole bunch of helicopters as well, they have also suffered losses in the airs. In fact, so much so that while the Russians at the start of the invasion, according to General Drozdov, had a six to one advantage in aircraft 
Now it's 10 to 1. So the Russians still are able to dominate the skies in Ukraine, which allows them to drop those bombs on apartment buildings and hospitals and killing civilians. I asked the Pentagon about this to get their take, and I spoke to a Pentagon public affairs officer who didn't want to get into, but his comment kind of struck me. And I included it in the story we published on Ukraine about our interview with Daniel Drozdov. The Pentagon guy said, this is not our war and we're not going to give operational updates on what's happening. Now, to some extent, John Kirby is doing so at the Pentagon in, in his Pentagon briefings. This is an underling. But that really struck me. This isn't our war. Actually, I think anybody in Congress listening to Zelensky today would say, yes, it is our war. It's the world's war. And we all have a stake in the outcome of what happens in Ukraine. No, no question about that. And we are pouring hundreds of millions of U.S. tax dollars worth of, of, of arms uh, in, into Ukraine. So by that standard alone, um, we are deeply invested in this war. But we are also invested in this war because it is one of the primary if not the primary battleground right now for the the war for democracy, right? And so I think we have an enormous stake in what happens uh, in Ukraine. Um, and uh, it's a little tone deaf, I think, to say that this is not our war. Yeah, I, I would hope whoever that, yeah, I mean, I know who it is. We didn't quote <laughs> him by name, but uh, I, I would I would hope that that Pentagon public affairs guy gets a uh, uh, an email reminder saying, don't say things like, it's not our war. The other thing about the planes uh, that's interesting to me is there have been bombardments from, from the air, but, but the vast majority of destruction and killing that's happened has actually been uh, from the ground, I believe, you know, artillery and, uh, you know, surface-to-ground missiles, uh, surface-to-air missiles, and that sort of thing. But that does not mean that if we were to send uh, fighter jets into Ukraine, it would have enormous symbolic value and uh, would be a huge boost uh, to morale uh, for the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military. And that is important as well. So you're going to hear a lot of debate about why, well, these MiGs wouldn't make that much of a difference anyway. And again, that is debatable. Um, it will make some difference, uh, no question. But the larger symbolic symbolic value is, I think, very important as well. Right. You know, you mentioned before about how Zelensky is just running rings around uh, Vladimir Putin in the information warfare game. And that is so striking because, you know, when we were all writing about the Russian interference in the U.S. election in 2016, uh, it was all how, you know, stealthy and clever the Russians were in manipulating American public opinion. And uh, uh, it turns out when it comes to world public opinion, Putin is helpless uh, compared to uh, Zelensky's uh, sort of moral case to the world. And, you know, just to go back to the impeachment thing for a moment, we've gone from where Trump was asking Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden. Here we are three years later. And uh, instead, he's essentially become Biden's moral tutor about what uh, needs to be done here. But it does, you know, what you're saying also does raise the question, uh, you know, whether we we overstated 
the Russians' skill in in terms of um, disinformation and uh, sowing dissent in the well, United not States. to mention also just sort of military capabilities because well, that's what I'm know, saying. everybody right. who's looked at this invasion sees you know total ineptitude. But on you look at every look at front, what, right? You look at what Zelensky has been doing over the past uh, few weeks um, in terms of information warfare and, and messaging, <laughs> to use a domestic political term. And then you compare it to uh, some of the things that Putin has done. Does it really rally the Russian people? Does it really make a big difference uh, when when he calls the Ukrainians a bunch of drug-addled Nazis? I mean, is that effective messaging? I I don't know. The one question I I had when I was watching that powerful video uh, during the Zelensky speech today is, are Russians going to be able to see that video, because as we know, Putin has shut down, pretty much shut down all independent media, including Facebook. But uh, Russians still have access to a very large platform there, uh, uh, Telegram, which is kind of a messaging app, but it's more than that because people have channels where they can, you know, put up content. And I imagine that that video is or soon will be proliferating proliferating on Telegram. That is the modern day Samizdat press in places like Russia. Let's turn to Putin because we had a, a really great talk with our friend Dan Hoffman, the former CIA station chief in Moscow on Twitter spaces uh, the other day about Putin's murderous past. Putin may not be as skillful in information warfare as we all thought he was, but he is pretty effective in killing people, killing people by poison, killing people by death, bringing his own death from the sky. So uh, Hoffman, who knows this subject as well as anybody, had a pretty good sort of history lesson on Putin's past and what it could uh, foretell for the future. You know, one thing, before we get to this, one thing I was thinking today, just reading about Putin's history, which just really struck me is that Hoffman will talk about this. We've talked about it. You know, the the kind of the leveling of uh, Grozny in, in the Chechnyan war. I think it was in the second Chechnyan war, uh, which is a preview of, you know, what we then saw in Aleppo and now what we're seeing in, in, in cities like uh, Kiev. What's so striking about it, that was the first year of Vladimir Putin's tenure in office. He's been there now for 22 years. So that should have told us something at the time that a Russian leader who was willing to do that uh, at the expense of his own citizenry was pretty ruthless and would likely do it again. And he has. Well, look, there's been a lot of tells about Vladimir Putin's conduct and what he's capable of, starting with Grozny, but it moves on from there. And, you know, just one big difference is in Grozny and in Aleppo, which was also leveled by Russian bombs, there wasn't the video. There weren't CNN reporters on the scene broadcasting it to the world. And so he was able to get away with it. But now, thanks to Western media and Zelensky's, you know, masterful efforts at shining a light on Russian aggression to the world, uh, we all do see it. So let's listen to uh, Dan Hoffman. He's got some really interesting points to make. 
Dan, I really want to uh, dig into the question about uh, the, the MiG-29s and what the United States should do and, and what you think we ultimately will do. But before that, this point about Putin's uh, desperation, turning to the Chinese for economic and military assistance. I mean, there's some people who think that striking in the west of Ukraine at that military facility may also be an act of desperation or at least deep frustration uh, because uh, the, the invasion seems to be just stuck. But the question is, for someone who has tracked Putin for all these years, and by that I mean um, also been studying his psychology and why he does the things that he does, does that kind of desperation uh, ultimately, doesn't it make him more dangerous? It does. I think if the one thing about Vladimir Putin that I would argue is that he's become more and more tolerant of risk as the years have gone by. We'll remember that his first kinetic military engagement was in Russia, in Chechnya where he leveled Grozny. And then there was the cyber attack on Estonia in 2007, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, the invasion of Ukraine and annexation of Crimea in 2014, deploying Russian military for the first time since the collapse of the Soviet Union overseas to Syria to prop up Bashar al-Assad, who would probably be dead right now if it weren't for Putin. And remember, Vladimir Putin enabled those horrific chemical weapons attacks that uh, we saw from Assad's murderous regime on innocent civilians. And so he's done all of those things. He used, you know, he turned Litvinenko, the FSB the defector in the UK, into a human dirty bomb by poisoning him with two, polonium-210. He used a banned chemical nerve agent, Novichok, on Sergei Skripal and on Alexei Navalny. And he's downed a Malaysian airliner in, in, in Ukraine. All of those things leading to this incredibly expansive I would say, just risk tolerance that, that we haven't seen from him before. And I kind of liken it to the decision from General Secretary Brezhnev in the last couple of years of his life to decide to invade Afghanistan for all that that entailed and all that it brought to the Soviet evil empire. You know, this is the Vladimir Putin, the leadership profile that the CIA wrote of him February 23rd of this year and before is a lot different than the one they're writing today. I bet they're editing it on a daily basis. Dan, I just want to add a few more instances of, of Putin's willingness to go to extreme lengths and violate norms. You mentioned the assassination of uh, Litvinenko in London uh, with polonium slipped into his tea by two FSB agents in 2006, just a few weeks before that. The Russian journalist, Anna Politskaya, is gunned down in her apartment at the time. Politskaya was working with Litvinenko to expose Putin's abuses in Chechnya, the human rights abuses that took place in the leveling of Chechnya and the suppression of uh, the revolt in that country. Uh, that's one to add to the list. And then... Uh, the other one is Boris Nepsov right. uh, in 2015, the leading uh, Russian opposition leader at the time, a charismatic guy walking across a bridge uh, on February 27, 2015, in the heart of Moscow and literally in the shadow of the Kremlin. He's gunned down. And what's the response from the Russians? We know uh, that um, at the Internet Research Agency, Agency, the troll farm that uh, Putin, Putin's chef, the oligarch uh, Prigozhin, set up, the trolls were ordered to blame the assassination on Ukrainian oligarchs. 
So there's a, a way in which all these extreme measures kind of connect together with Putin and lead us directly to where we are today. Yeah, you make some fantastic points. You know, I've, I've actually been in Anna Politkovskaya's uh, apartment complex after she was killed there. A point on that, really? Vladimir Putin declared war on the media, I mean, most immediately after becoming president, and has embarked on a, a strategy of just killing Russian journalists. Uh, there's no freedom of the press in Russia. He immediately took state control over the television. If you listen to their TV, which I do every day, it's just this crazy Orwellian disinformation propaganda. No surprise there, because Vladimir Putin is a KGB guy, and he's a natural purveyor of lies and disinformation. On Boris Nemtsov, the Russian public might have been told it was Ukraine. Uh, that's one element of Vladimir Putin's subterfuge. But the other one is that his own people, his inner circle, were absolutely aware that there were, crem there were breadcrumbs leading back to the Kremlin. Putin needs to demonstrate uh, to his own inner circle that he's ruthless with his enemies because he knows that, that the first guys were going to come after him based on what we saw from the KGB coup against Gorbachev in 1991 are his own guys. That's what he has to fear right now. When they decide he's just not up to the task of leading Russia and enabling their kleptocracy, they're going to move on him. They are the biggest threat to him. So Nemtsov wasn't a threat to Vladimir Putin, obviously. He was probably supported by less than 5% of the population. But Vladimir Putin just needed to show that he's ruthless. And if you choose to be his enemy, he's going to kill you. That's why he could have killed Sergei Skripal with a hammer to that guy's head outside the pub in, in Salisbury in the UK. But he used Dovichuk because he wanted breadcrumbs leading back to the Kremlin so his own people would understand, don't betray Vladimir Putin or you'll be dead. And he wants yeah, some did I, did plausible I... deniability with the West because he doesn't want he wants to be able to say, hey, you're not you shouldn't be sanctioning me. I didn't do this. And then the Cheshire grin with his own people is, yeah, I did it. Dan, did I hear you that you were in Nepsov's apartment after his? No, I was in Anna Politkovskaya's. Oh, really? Anna Politkovskaya. So that's in 2000. I was there um, afterwards. I, I happened to be in her apartment and saw it. I mean, it wasn't for any other reason that I just happened to be. Look, Russia has a lot of. A lot of interesting sites. You know, you can visit Borodino, the famous, you know, military uh, battle was fought there. And then you can visit museums and you can visit, you know, apartments where uh, journalists got schwacked, if you wish. Can you visit the Lubyanka, uh, the uh, old notorious KGB yes, prison? Yes, I've been there. I've been there in 1994 with Louis Free, the FBI director. It's a, it's a pretty, pretty great place. Yeah. Uh, I would think. Uh, on uh, Politskaya, Dan, did you reach a conclusion as to uh, who assassinated her and why? Well, in those days, what Vladimir Putin used to do is he'd have lists of journalists who weren't quite up to his level of uh, Orwellian disinformation. She was on that list. You know, she was covering egregious human rights violations in Chechnya. And so mm -hmm. I think there was it was debatable about whether it was somebody kind of just deciding to go and kill her or whether it might have been actually the state that did it. But it's almost a distinction without a difference. In, in Vladimir Putin's world, he really does believe that the media that doesn't condone what his policy is, his vicious policies internally and overseas. That's the enemy of his regime. And, you know, the, the, in Russia and throughout their history, the people serve the regime. We know in the United States, the government is supposed to serve the people. 
Hence, you know, President Zelensky's, you know, his comedy show was Servant of the People. That's absolutely not what happens uh, or has ever happened in Russia or the Soviet Union. Uh, this is Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine. These are his human rights yeah. violations. And at some point, his own people are going to wake up to this and decide that this is not in their interest. That's one way you get out of this, potentially. Yeah. So, Dan, these assassinations, poisonings, clearly are seem to be evidence of, of Putin's uh, brutality and how far he'll go. But in some ways, the more apt analogy right now for what he's doing is uh, sort of Putin's way of war. And we know that in the Chechen war, he, he uh, demolished Grozny. We know uh, what he did in Aleppo and in other Syrian cities. And, you know, those were blockaded cities, much like we're seeing in Ukraine now, uh, where people were dying, huge numbers of people were dying because of the lack of medicine, star even starvation. You know, you read accounts of people eating grass, uh, eating cats. Um, you're hearing stories maybe not quite that grim yet um, in Ukraine. But tell us about, about Putin's way of war. And also, how does what he's doing now play into his ability to to strengthen his position in Russia, or does it do the opposite? So to start with his position in Russia, you know, he always said that, that the greatest, uh, that the, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, which is an awfully odd thing to say, given all the other things that happened in, in the previous century. But he's kind of bringing the Soviet Union back. Now, he was saying that because he was playing upon Russians' feeling of resentment and sort of a national inferiority complex after the fall of the Soviet Union and kind of glossing over all of the Soviet Union's human rights violations, the Chernobyl accident. I was studying in the UK when that happened. And so he's kind of brought back the Soviet Union. If you look at this, this Russia right now is a pariah state, diplomatically isolated. Their economy is cratered. Putin promised stability after 1998. And that was when you know they had massive economic collapse and he used that collapse as evidence of the fact that the Yeltsin regime just was not up to the task of managing Russia's economy, and he would bring stability. Well, look what he's done. I mean, you know, McDonald's and Starbucks are gone, and the Russian economy, the ruble's worth less than a penny. Uh, he's completely failed his own people. And so eventually, when the dead soldiers don't come home, and people can't get their money out of ATMs, and they see the economy just cratering like it is, Russian people will start to question Vladimir Putin and his leadership. There have been a lot of protests. I don't think that's going to result in regime change. It's possible. I wouldn't rule it out. But I think it's more likely that Putin's own inner circle just decides time to sacrifice the old man. After all, he's almost 70. And by Soviet standards, that's you know reaching a point where maybe it's time to look to somebody else. And how, how did Dan? How does that play out? And and who would play the role of forcing Putin out or taking other extreme measures to remove? Yeah. Him? So they. I mean, it's there's three people in his inner circle now. I'm not saying it's it's just exclusively these three, but the people who are tightest with Vladimir Putin right now are his FSB director. Bortnikov, National Security Advisor Patrushev, who used to run the FSB, and then Minister of Defense Shoigu. Those are your three. Now, they all have their own constituencies. You know, the FSB is pretty big, and they're responsible for repressing the Russian population. 
and ensuring Vladimir Putin's regime security. They also, those three constituencies, they make a lot of money. Vladimir Putin might have thought Russia was you know, uh, modernizing their, their military after, after Georgia, as he ordered them to do, but they were actually just stealing the money that came. That's what they've done. This has been all about stealing the money that Russia's earned from the export of hydrocarbons. And so if those three leaders and their based on their own constituencies decide, you know what, Vladimir Putin's not the right guy, they might come up with a plan to remove him. Now, that's extraordinarily extreme and would cause us great concern, like who's got the keys to Russia's nuclear weapons during this transition period? Remember, you know, it's a good time to kind of dust off the collapse of the Soviet Union, that history, and and how you know the the Belarusky, uh, the Belarus, the agreement in Belarus in December 25th, 1991, that resulted in the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and how nuclear weapons were passed, you know, the, the command and control for that to Russia. It's time for the U.S. intelligence community to be looking at the chain of command, military chain of command from Moscow to Ukraine, and thinking about the links in that chain of command and how to either disrupt them collect intelligence on them, message them. I've got to think there's a lot of messaging going on right now from the U.S. government to Russia, drawing some red lines, but keeping the, keeping, you know, the, the dialogue open between our two nations so we avoid any miscalculation. You know, Dan, let me uh, ask you a bit about U.S. policy towards Putin's Russia over the years. I mean, you laid out all the abuses that Putin has committed from the leveling of Grozny to the multiple assassinations, you know, to the annexation of Crimea. Yet there was until recently a continuous effort by U.S. officials to engage with Putin's Russia. During Obama, there was the famous reset, despite warnings from some that it was still very much Vladimir Putin in control. Uh, the Obama people preferred to think that Medvedev, his appointed successor, could be reasoned with. You mentioned Bortnikov, uh, the head of the FSB, in 2015, Bordnikov comes to Washington to attend a White House summit on countering violent extremism, despite the fact that the European Union had blacklisted him after the uh, Crimea annexation. And Bordnikov gets welcomed to, to the CIA headquarters to meet John Brennan on the seventh floor. What do you make of the way uh, the U.S. government over the years has dealt with Putin's Russia? Yeah, so naively, I guess, if I had to sum it up in one word, we always tilted towards Russia. And there were a sizable number, I think, of U.S. foreign policy experts who believed that if we hadn't expanded NATO, if we hadn't sought to defend those new NATO members, including by putting anti-aircraft systems in their countries, Romania and Poland, for example, that Russia wouldn't have behaved this way. Actually, I think it's fair enough to say that those countries are all victims and would, would have been victims, and Russia the aggressor. Those, the Baltic states would look like Ukraine right now if they're lucky. I don't think they would have been able to fight for that long. Vladimir Putin is who he is and was who he was, KGB guy. And so you know, our policies of expanding NATO were, were right, and we never quite understood that in order to deal with Russia, it required simultaneously operating from a position of strength where we were, we were tough on Russia and demanding of Russia, while at the same time looking for opportunities to work together. And I sadly saw this in you know, different administrations where it was in either or. Either we reset with the Russians and we're 
going to work closely with them and let them get away with murder, literally, in their own country and in Georgia, not to mention overseas. Or it was Cold War tough policies. But actually, the best way to do it is in between. With President Reagan's President Reagan administration fought a proxy war in Afghanistan that really bloodied the Soviet Union and the Red Army, but at the same time negotiated the most comprehensive nuclear arms agreements in our history. That's kind of the way to do it. The idea that we would pursue a reset policy right after Russia invaded and occupied Georgia and launched a massive cyber attack on our NATO ally Estonia, I mean, really, that's what you want to call it? Reset? That sounds to me like what yeah. Russia would want. So I just think we were so, so wildly naive about it and naive, too, about the fact that we could have any influence over Putin, the, the individual. I mean, President Trump used to say he had a great relationship with Vladimir Putin. I can tell you, Vladimir Putin didn't see it quite that way with him, with President Trump or Bush. Look into his soul, yeah, look into his eyes, you see a KGB guy. I think Mitt, you know, Mitt Romney probably had it, Senator Romney probably had it right, but I'm not so sure that the rest of our elected officials did. I just wanted to, to bring it uh, back to the, uh, the current moment in terms of U.S. policy. I mean, if if, if Reagan did the right thing by fighting that proxy war in Afghanistan at the same time negotiating with the Russians, should the United States be fighting a proxy war in Ukraine? What does that mean in terms of how, how much more involvement we should have in that fight? Uh, we talked about the MiG-29s. Should we be doing more? What should the role of the CIA be uh, in fighting that war? Should we fully back an insurgency if that's what it comes to? Uh, going forward, what should the U.S. role be? So we are fighting a proxy war, like it or not, we're doing that in Ukraine because we're giving them lethal military equipment that results in killing Russian soldiers. So that, that's happening. The debate is how far to go and when does proxy war kind of become direct engagement U.S. versus Russia, which was something we've always avoided going back to the days of the Cold War. So the idea of a no-fly zone, much debated Look, much of Russia's attacks on Ukraine are coming from their ground forces anyway, so I'm not sure a no-fly zone would, would achieve all that we would like, but good on President Zelensky for asking for it. I think providing them javelins and stingers and not providing the MiGs, I mean, that's just a distinction without a difference. I just find that uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. And again, I think we could have done all this. I mean, it, 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 I say this once, and maybe it just doesn't matter, but history will be written. In a year ago, when, when Vladimir Putin had 70,000 troops on the border, that was the time to give Ukraine massive numbers of javelins, massive numbers of stingers, and transfer the MiGs. Because I'm sure we had to have considered the likelihood that Vladimir Putin was going to launch another attack on Ukraine, whether it was a limited one in Donbass or the sort of massive invasion we've seen today. Regardless, the way to deter it would have been to it, give the Ukraine what they needed then and not now. Had we done it then, some would have argued that we would have forced Putin to escalate, which is the same argument about why we, you know, about the NATO membership expanding to the Baltics. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But that will be discussed just to get in the future. But to get back to your question about the CIA and what the CIA can do and what they are doing, it's about, first and foremost, collecting intelligence so that we understand Russia's plans and intentions. That's the tactical nature of the, attack, of the attacks from Russian forces, which we can collect on. It's strategic intelligence on Vladimir Putin's plans and those around him, enabling that information to be delivered to Ukraine on a timely basis, because intelligence is not like fine wine getting better with age. You've got to pass it right away for it to be of value. 
and then sharing with with Ukrainian officials uh, and with their security teams uh, all of the indications and warning that we obtain on on threats to President Zelensky's life. There have been reportedly at least three of those plots foiled. We want to pass that intelligence immediately to the Ukrainians so that they can detect those threats and then preempt them before they materialize. As far as what else the CIA could do, covert action, things like that, I would just you know remind folks. Whatever CIA does has got to be consistent with U.S. policy. So don't tell me that the CIA should be bombing the convoy. That is not consistent with U.S. policy. And what's more, you you could never do that and hide the U.S. government hand. So this is not like going to look a whole lot like Afghanistan. I think this is about an overt provision of support to Ukraine, clear delineation of that, where we don't go beyond a point where we risk U.S.-Russian direct engagement with one another, and then telling the Russians, using our direct lines of communication, telling them, we are providing assistance to Ukraine because you invaded, because you launched attacks on innocent civilians and blew up a maternity ward. That's why we're doing this. Stop your invasion, and we too will stop. Well... We'll see if such a message actually works. We should point out that there are at least some glimmer of progress in these Russian-Ukrainian talks. It's uh, both Lavrov and Zelensky, although he didn't mention it in his speech to Congress, did indicate that there was some progress being made. Clearly, it would require some concessions by Zelensky to neutrality by Ukraine, to agreeing not to join NATO, uh, and perhaps accepting Russian control over uh, a big segment of this country, the uh, eastern portion, Donbass and uh, Crimea. Whether Zelensky, after sort of making all these really inspiring talks about breathing defiance to the world, can then do that? I don't know. It seems like his position on all of these issues has hardened. I mean, not surprisingly, the rhetoric before Russia began destroying his country was more conciliatory than afterwards. But, you know, we've learned we've learned a lot about Volodymyr Zelensky, which is that maybe we underestimated him before. Maybe he he is uh, he's a more complex figure than I think we understood you're right, he did not mention the possibility of diplomacy in his speech. But then again, you wouldn't in a speech like this, where what you're trying to do is in some ways shame the United States Congress into providing as much support, as military support as possible in this uh, desperate hour for the Ukrainians. But that doesn't mean that he isn't pursuing parallel tracks. One thing that you hear is the possibility of the Austria model, that uh, Austria is, in a sense, neutral. Its security is backed by Germany and France and other Western European countries. Maybe that's the direction they'll go with. And then we don't know what Putin will accept at this point. Whatever it is, it's going to have to be something that is uh, that, he, that he views as face-saving. And what he views as face-saving may be Uh, a bridge too far for Zelensky and and for the West. So I think it's very premature to talk about the possibility of of a diplomatic settlement, but, you know, hope lives on. 
We shall see. We shall see. And plenty more we'll have to talk about in Skullduggeries to come. So please stay with us. And if you want to leave reviews and your comments, do so on iTunes. We appreciate the positive ones. Uh, if you're not as positive, maybe you could keep it to yourself. I love, reading, case, the, <laughs> I love reading the negative ones to my, do you? About you, All to right. my daughters. Well, have at it. <laughs> Go after us. Anyway, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon.